Chapter One of the Marie Antoinette Romances, Volume Five, The Countess of Charny. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. The New Men at the Wheel. It was on the first of October, seventeen ninety-one that the new legislative assembly was to be inaugurated over France. King Louis the Sixteenth, captured with Queen Marie Antoinette and the royal family, while attempting to escape from the kingdom and join his brothers and the other princes abroad, was held in a kind of detention, like imprisonment without hard labor, in the Tuileries Palace in Paris. His fate hung on the members of the new House of Representatives. Let us hasten to see what they were. The Congress was composed of seven hundred and forty-five members, four hundred lawyers of one kind or another, some seventy literary men, seventy priests who had taken the oath to abide by the Constitution not yet framed, but to which the King had subscribed on the sketch. The remaining two hundred odd were landholders, farming their own estates or hiring them out to others. Among these was Francois Billet, a robust peasant of forty-five, distinguished by the people of Paris and France as a hero, from having been mainly instrumental in the taking of the Bastille, regarded as the embodiment of the ancient tyranny now almost leveled with the dust. Billet had suffered two wrongs at the hands of the king's men and the nobles, which he had sworn to avenge as well on the classes as on the individuals. His farmhouse had been pillaged by Paris policemen, acting under a blank warrant signed by the king, and issued at the request of Andrea de Tavernay, Countess of Charny, the queen's favorite, as her husband the count was reckoned to. She had a spite against Billet's friend, Dr. Honor Gilbert, a noted patriot and politician. In his youth, this afterward distinguished physician had taken advantage of her senses, being steeped in a mesmeric swoon, to lower her pride. Thanks to this trance, and from his overruling love, he was the progenitor of her son, Sebastian Emile Gilbert. But with all the pride of this paternity, he was haunted by unceasing remorse. Andrea could not forgive this crime, all the more as it was a thorn in her side since her marriage. It was a marriage enforced on her, as the Count of Charny had been caught by the king on his knees to the queen, and to prevent the stupid monarch being convinced by this scene that there was truth in the tattle at court, that Count Charny was Marie Antoinette's paramour. She had explained that he merely was suing for the hand of her friend Andrea. The king's consent given, this marriage took place, but for six years the couple dwelt apart. Not that mutual love did not prevail between them, but neither was aware of the affection each had inspired in the other at first sight. The new countess thought that Charny's affection for the queen was a guilty and durable one, while he— believing his wife by compulsion a saint on earth, dared not presume on the position which fate and devotion to their sovereign had imposed on them both. 
This devotion was confirmed on the Count's part, cemented by blood, for his two brothers, Valence and Isidore, had lost their lives in defending the king and queen from the revolutionists. Andrea had a brother, Philip, who also loved the queen, but he had been offended by her amour with Charny, and being touched by an American Republican fever, while fighting with Lafayette for the liberation of the thirteen colonies, he had quitted the court of France. On his way, he had wounded Gilbert, whom he learned to be his sister's wronger, as well as having stolen away her infant son. But although the wound would have been mortal under other treatment, it had been healed by the wondrous medicaments of Joseph Balsamo, alias Count Cagliostro, the celebrated head of the Invisibles, a branch of the Orient Freemasons, dedicated to overthrow the monarchy and set up a republic, after the United States model, in France, if not in Europe. Gilbert and Cogliostro were therefore fast friends, to say nothing of the latter's regret that he should have set temptation in the young man's way. It was he who had plunged Andrea into the magnetic slumber, from which she had awakened a maid no longer. But some recompense had come to the proud lady, after the six years' wedded life to the very man she adored, though fate and misunderstanding had estranged them. On learning what a martyr she had been through the unconscious motherhood, Count George had more than forgiven her. He worshipped her and in their country seat at Borzon, eighteen miles from France, he was forgetting in her lovely arms the demands of his queen, his king, and his caste, to use his influence in the political arena. This silence on his part led to the candidature of Farmer Belay being unimpeded. Besides, Charny would hardly have moved in opposition to the latter, as one cause of the enmity of the peasant was his daughter's ruin by Viscount Isidore Charny. The death of the latter, not being by Billet's hand, had not appeased the grudge. He was a stern, unrelenting man, and just as he would not forgive his daughter Catherine for her dishonor, or even look upon her son, he stood out uncompromisingly against the nobles and the priests. Charny had stolen his daughter. The clergy, in the person of his parish priest, Father Fortier, had refused burial to his wife. On her grave he had vowed eternal hostility to the nobles and the clericals. The farmer had great power at election time, and they employed ten, twenty, or thirty hands, and though the suffrage was divided into two classes at the period, the result depended on the rural vote. As each man quitted Belay at the grave, he shook him by the hand, saying, "'It is a sure thing, brother.' Belay had gone home to his lonely farm, easy on this score. For the first time he saw a plain way of returning the noble class and royalty all the harm they had done him. He felt, but did not reason, and his thirst for vengeance was as blind as the blows he had received. His daughter had come home to nurse her mother, and receive, at the last gasp, her blessing for her son, born in shame. 
but Belay had said never a word to her. None could tell if he were aware of her flitting through the farm. Since a year he had not uttered her name, and it was the same as if she had never existed. Her only friend was Ange Batou, a poor peasant lad whom Belay had harbored when he was driven from home by his Aunt Angelique. As Catherine was really the ruler of the roast on the farm, it was but natural that Petou should offer her some part of the gratitude Belay had earned. This excellent feeling expanded into love, but there was little chance for the peasant when the girl had been captivated by the elegant young lord. Although the elevation common during the revolution had exalted Ange into a captaincy of the National Guards. But Petou had never swerved in his love for the deluded girl. He had a heart of gold. He was deeply sorry that Catherine had not loved him. But on comparing himself with young Charny, he acknowledged that she must prefer him. He envied Isidore, but he bore Catherine no ill will. Quite otherwise, he still loved her with profound and entire devotion. To say this dedication was completely exempt from anguish is going too far. But the pangs which made Petou's heart ache at each new token of Catherine's love for her dead lover showed his ineffable goodness. All his feeling for Catherine when Isidore was slain at Vahans, where Belay arrested the king in his flight, was of utter pity. Quite contrary to Belay, he did justice to the young noble in the way of grace, generosity, and kindness, though he was his rival without knowing it. Like Catherine, he knew that the barriers of caste were insurmountable, and that the Viscount could not have made his sweetheart his wife. The consequence was that Petou perhaps more loved the widow in her sorrow than when she was the coquettish girl. But it came to pass that he almost loved the little orphan boy like his own. Let none be astonished, therefore, that after taking leave of Belay like the others, Ange went toward Herramont instead of Belay's farm, which might also be his home. But he had lodgings at Herramont village, where he was born, and he was chief of the National Guards there. They were so accustomed to his sudden departures and unexpected returns that nobody was worried at them. When he went away, they said to one another, "'He has gone to town to confer with General Lafayette.' For the French lieutenant of General Washington was the friend, here as there, of Dr. Gilbert, who was their fellow peasant's patron, and had furnished the funds to equip the Haramont Company of Volunteers. On their commander's return, they asked news of the capital, and as he could give the freshest and truest, thanks to Dr. Gilbert, who was an honorary physician to the king, as well as friend of Cogliostro, in other words, the communicator between the two laden jars of the revolution, Petou's predictions were sure to be realized in a few days, so that all continued to show him blind trust, as well as military captain as political prophet. On his part, Gilbert knew all that was good and self-sacrificing in the peasant. He felt that he was a man to whom he might at the scratch entrust his life or Sebastian's, a treasure or a commission, anything confided to strength and loyalty. Every time Petou came to Paris, the doctor would ask him if he stood in need of anything, without the young man coloring up, and while he would always say, 
nothing thank you dr gilbert this did not prevent the physician giving him some money which patou engulfed in his pocket a few gold pieces with what he picked up in the game shot or trapped in the duke of orleans woods were a fortune so rarely did he find himself at the end of his resources when he met the doctor and had his supply renewed knowing then how friendly patou was with catherine and her baby it will be understood that he hastily separated from Belay to know how his cast-off daughter was getting on. His road to Heramont took him past a hut in the woods where lived a veteran of the wars, who, on a pension and the privilege of killing a hare or a rabbit each day, lived a happy hermit's life, remote from man. Father Clovis, as this old soldier was called, was a great friend of Pitou. He had taught the boy to go gunning, and also the military drill by which he had trained the Haramont guards to be the envy of the county. When Catherine was banished from her father's, after Belay had tried to shoot Isidore, his hut sheltered her till after the birth of her son. On her applying once more for the like hospitality, he had not hesitated. And when Pithou came along, she was sitting on the bed with tears on her cheek at the revival of sad memories and her boy in her arms. On seeing the newcomer, Catherine set down the child and offered her forehead for Pitou's kiss. He gladly took her two hands, kissed her, and the child was sheltered by the arch formed with his stooping figure. Dropping on his knees to her and kissing the baby's little hands, he exclaimed, "'Never mind. I am rich. Master Isidore shall never come to want.' Pitou had twenty-five gold louis, which he reckoned to make him rich. Keen of his wit and kind of heart, Catherine appreciated all that is good. "'Thank you, Captain Pitou, she said. "'I believe you, and I am happy in so believing, for you are my only friend. And if you were to cast me off, we should stand alone in the world. But you never will, will you?' "'Oh, don't talk like that!' cried Pitou, sobbing. "'You will make me pour out all the tears in my body.' "'I was wrong. Excuse me,' she said. "'No, no, you are right. I am a fool to blubber.' "'Captain Pitou,' said Catherine, "'I should like an airing.' give me your arm for a stroll under the trees i fancy it will do me good i feel as if i were smothering myself added patou the child had no need of air nothing but sleep so he was laid abed and catherine walked out with patou five minutes after they were in the natural temple under the huge trees without being a philosopher on a level with voltaire or rousseau Pitou understood that he and Catherine were atoms, carried on by the whirlwind. But these atoms had their joy and grief, just like the other atoms called king, queen, nobles. The mill of God, held by fatality, ground crowns and thrones to dust at the same time, and crushed Catherine's happiness no less harshly than if she wore a diadem. Two years and a half before, Pitou was a poor peasant lad, 
hunted from home by his aunt angelique received by belay feasted by catherine and cut out by isidore at present Angepetou was a power he wore a sword by his side and epaulettes on his shoulders he was called a captain and he was protecting the widow and son of the slain viscount isidore relatively to Petou, the expression was exact of danton who when asked why he was making the revolution replied to put on high what was undermost and send the highest below all but though these ideas danced in his head he was not the one to profit by them and the good and modest fellow went on his knees to beg catherine to let him shield her and the boy like all suffering hearts catherine had a finer appreciation in grief than in joy the two who was in her happy days a lad of no consequence became the holy creature he really was in other words a man of goodness candor and devotion the result was that unfortunate and in want of a friend she understood that Petou was just the friend she wished and so always received by catherine with one hand held out to him and a witching smile Petou began to lead a life of bliss of which he never had had the idea even in dreams of paradise during this time belay still mute as regarded his daughter pursued his idea of being nominated for the house while getting in his harvest only one man could have beaten him if he had the same ambition but entirely absorbed in his love and happiness the count of charny the world forgetting believed himself forgotten by the world he did not think of the matter enjoying his unexpected felicity hence nothing opposed belay's election in villers cotterets district and he was elected by an immense majority as soon as chosen he began to turn everything into money it had been a good year he set aside his landlord's share reserved his own put aside the grain for sowing and the fodder for his livestock and the cash to keep the work folks going and one morning sent for Petou. now and then Petou paid him a visit belay always welcomed him with open hand made him take meals if anything was on the board or wine or cider if it was the right time for drinks but never had belay sent for Petou. hence it was not without disquiet that the young man proceeded to the farm belay was always grave nobody could say that he had seen a smile pass over his lips since his daughter had left the farm this time he was graver than usual still he held out his hand in the old manner to Petou, shook his with more vigor than usual and kept it in his while the other looked at him with wonder you are an honest fellow said the farmer faith i believe i am replied Petou. i am sure of it you are very good master belay it follows that as i am going away i shall leave you at the head of my farm impossible there are a lot of petty matters for which a woman's eye is indispensable i know it replied belay 
you can select the woman to share the superintendence with you i shall not ask her name i don't want to know it and when i come down to the farm i shall notify you a week ahead so she will have time to get out of the way if she ought not to see me or i see her very well master belay said the new steward now in the granary is the grain for sowing also the hay and other fodder for the cattle and in this drawer you see the cash to pay the hands he opened a drawer full of hard money stop a bit master how much is in this drawer i do not know rejoined belay locking the drawer and giving the key to patou with the words when you want more ask for it patou felt all the trust in this speech and put out his hand to grasp the others but was checked by his humility nonsense said belay why should not honest men grasp hands if you should want me in town rest easy i shall not forget you it is two o'clock i shall start for paris at five at six you might be here with the woman you choose to second you right but then there is no time to lose said patou i hope we shall soon meet again dear master belay belay watched him hurrying away as long as he could see him and when he disappeared he said now why did not catherine fall in love with an honest chap like that rather than one of those noble vermin who leaves her a mother without being a wife and a widow without her being wed it is needless to say that belay got upon the villers cotterets stage to ride to paris at five and that at six catherine and little isidore re-entered the farm belay found himself among young men in the house not merely representatives but fighters for it was felt that they had to wrestle with the unknown they were armed against two enemies the clergy and the nobility if these resisted the orders were for them to be overcome the king was pitied and the members were left free to treat him as occasion dictated it was hoped that he might escape the threefold power of the queen the clergy and the aristocracy if they upheld him they would all be broken to pieces with him they moved that the title of majesty should be suppressed what shall we call the executive power then asked the voice call him the king of the french shouted belay it's a pretty title enough for capet to be satisfied with moreover instead of a throne the king of the french had to content himself with a plain armchair and that was placed on the left of the speakers so that the monarch should be subordinated in the absence of the king the constitution was sworn to by the sad cold house all aware that the impotent laws would not endure a year all these motions were equivalent to saying 
There is no longer a king. Money, as usual, took fright. Down went the stocks dreadfully, and the bankers took alarm. There was a revulsion in favor of the king, and his speech in the house was so applauded that he went to the theater that evening in high glee. That night he wrote to the powers of Europe that he had subscribed to the Constitution. So far the house had been tolerant, mild to the refractory priests and paying pensions to the princes and nobles who had fled abroad. We shall see how the nobles recompensed this mildness. When they were debating on paying the old and infirm priests, though they might be opposed to the Reformation, news came from Avignon of a massacre of revolutionists by the religious fanatics and a bloody reprisal of the other party. As for the runaway nobles, still drawing revenue from their country, this is what they were doing. They reconciled Austria with Prussia, making friends of two enemies. They induced Russia to forbid the French ambassador going about the St. Petersburg streets, and sent a minister to the refugees at Koblenz. They made Bern punish a town for singing the It Shall Go On. They led the kings to act roughly. Russia and Sweden sent back with unbroken seals Louis XVI's dispatches announcing his adhesion to the Constitution. Spain refused to receive it, and a French revolutionist would have been burned by the Inquisition only for his committing suicide. Venice threw on St. Mark's place the corpse of a man strangled in the night by the Council of Ten, with the plain inscription, This was a Freemason. The Emperor and the King of Prussia did answer, but it was by a threat. Quote, we trust we shall not have to take precautions against the repetition of events promising such sad auguries. End quote. Hence, there was a religious war in La Vendée, and in the South, with prospective war abroad. At present, the intention of the crowned heads was to stifle the revolution rather than cut its throat. The defiance of aristocratic Europe was accepted, and instead of waiting for the attack, the orator of the house cried for France to begin the movement. The absentee princes were summoned home on penalty of losing all rights to the succession. The nobles' property was seized, unless they took the oath of allegiance to the country. The priests were granted a week to take the oath, or to be imprisoned, and no churches could be used for worship unless by the sworn clergy. Lafayette's party wished the king to oppose his veto to these acts, but the queen so hated Lafayette that she induced the court party to support Petion instead of the general for the post of mayor of Paris. Strange blindness in favor of Petion, her rude jailer, who had brought her back from the flight to Varennes. On the 19th of December, the king vetoed the bill against the priests. That night, at the Jacobin Club, the debate was hot. Verschot, a Swiss, offered the society a sword for the first general who should vanquish the enemies of freedom. Is not the wrath of the house, a southerner, drew the sword and leaped up into the rostrum, crying, 
behold the sword of the exterminating angel it will be victorious france will give a loud call and all the people will respond the earth will then be covered with warriors and the foes of liberty will be wiped out from the list of men ezekiel could not have spoken better this drawn sword was not to be sheathed for war broke out within and without the switzer's sword was first to smite the king of france the foreign sovereigns afterward end of chapter one recording by john van stan savannah georgia